a DC-8 has to return to the Jeddah airport and basically explodes on landing due to an in-flight fire. How did a company call cause this plane to catch fire on takeoff? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And I'm sick. Yeah. <laughs> so last week, me and Christy was sick. Now Nick's sick. So I'm not that sick, but those two are real sick. So I'm getting better. If yeah. you hear some coughs that we couldn't edit out, I'm sorry. I'm getting better, but still in it. So To win it. We'll see how this goes. I'm going to try the best as I can with my voice. We're heading into the holiday season, friends. Everyone gets sick around the holidays. Stress. Dude, finals. Not about it. (laughs) Stress, stress. Stress. I think this comes out the week I graduate. Sweet. Yeah, I think this comes out the week of finals. Yeah, so it comes out the week I graduate from college. I think this comes out the day of my MEA final. Yay. This day will be a stressful day. I have to teach the children's. Wish me luck, guys. This comes out on a (laughs) Tuesday for me. (laughs) I don't have anything special. I'm sorry. All right. Nick, what are we going to go over today? We are going over Nigerian 2120. Get ready for drama. Yeah, where last week's story lasted about 30 seconds and was kind of anticlimactic, this one is really dramatic. We're definitely making up for it today. Yeah. So this takes place on July 11th of 1991. It was a DC-861 with the registration number of Charlie-Golf-Mike-X-Ray-Quebec. These are using the alphabet of aviation, by the way. This was a charter flight carried out by Nation Air. Nation Air was an airline based in Montreal, Canada, but it was operating this uh, charter flight from Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia to Sokoto in Nigeria. It was doing this for passengers that had made the pilgrimage from Nigeria to Saudi Arabia to go to Mecca, as they do. It's a big deal for the Muslim religion. Right. Slightly not part of the episode, but part of the Mecca is like, the Mecca is a giant like cube, basically. Empty cube. That used to have a bunch of idols inside of it. Now it's just empty. And I don't... I learned something in school, friends. Um, this was in my history class that we went over this. And they all, like, circle around it. But mm-hmm. they never go inside. You're not allowed to go inside. I don't think anyone's allowed to go inside. No, I don't think so. I don't know that much about it, so I can't speak to it. It, it had something to do with the prophet. And he was like, you shouldn't be worshipping yeah, idols. That's where Muhammad is from. Yeah. So... Anyway, sidetrack, good history note there on what the Mecca is. Well, I mean, it's relevant. Because that is why they were there. Most of them hadn't even been on a plane before, but they were making their their pilgrimage to Mecca for the first time. And so this airplane was chartered for that journey by Nigerian Airways, but it was carried out on behalf of them uh, by Nation Air. The captain was William Allen. He was 47 years old. He was a former Canadian Air Force pilot. He has twenty. He had twenty years of flying experience at the time, ten thousand seven hundred hours total, uh, one thousand hours on the DC-8. 
The first officer was Kent Davidge. He was the pilot flying at the start of this. And he was 36 years old, 8,000 hours total, of which 550 hours were on the DC-8. The flight engineer was Victor Furr. He was 46. He had 7,500 hours total, of which 1,000 hours were on the DC-8. There were also two deployed Nation Air employees on board on behalf of this flight to, to keep it up in the air. They were the lead mechanic, Jean-Paul Philippe and the project manager, Tatamani. The plane carried out a really long taxi from the gate in Jeddah that morning all the way to the runway where it was cleared for takeoff on 3-4 left. Temperatures that morning had already hit 30 degrees Celsius outside, which is very warm. Can you do a quick conversion? What's the Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the conversion? And we live in the United States, so we use Fahrenheit. And we don't use the metric system, so. Because we are admittedly dumb. <laughs> so about 86 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, that's not super hot. Yeah, but this is at 8.15 in the morning. Yeah, that's hot. <laughs> For 8.15 in the morning, that's pretty hot. That kind of sucks. So how long, I, I know you guys asked this to each other earlier, but do you know how long they taxied? Yep, they Taxied five kilometers, and it took him 11 minutes. It's really far, actually, for a taxi, normal how, taxi. How airport. many miles is five kilometers? 3.125. Hmm. Which is a pretty long taxi. At, at most airports in the United States, taxi from gate to takeoff is less than a mile. And it, it takes, what, maybe two minutes? Yeah. Three minutes, depending on where you are. Yeah, two, three minutes to taxi from one from the gate to the... A runway, yeah, if yeah. you're given instructions all the way to. Depends. So. If you're on a really far runway at DAA, it can take longer. <laughs> yeah, it can. So a long taxi on In an heat. All, already hot day. Yep. They released the brakes for takeoff and increased throttle to max thrust, confirmed by the first officer, and takeoff was at 8.28 a.m. On the takeoff roll, a loud bang was heard. Flight engineer quickly said within two seconds, What's that? First officer said, we got a flat tire, you figure? To which the captain replied in a very Canadian way, You're not leaning on the brakes, eh? <laughs> that's his words. That's literally what it says. Is that what it said on the CBR? That's what he said. Yeah, that's, that's what he hilarious. said. <clears throat> no offense, Canada. Yeah, Canadians, we love you. Thank you for listening. Yep. I think there's only a few. Yeah, but it's still enough. I mean, you matter too. <laughs> <laughs> and then the first officer replied again, No, I'm not. I got my feet on the bottom of the rudder pedals. No trouble was seen on the instruments at the time either, so they had no indication anything was immediately wrong. A shutter or shimmy was described by the first officer as a shimmy, like you're riding on one of those thingamajigs. That is his words. That's literally exactly what that he is, said. What the heck is he talking that about? That is what he said. The thingamajigs. <laughs> like, yep. I, I want to know what he had in his brain. I don't know what a thingamajig is. I don't know. But on the CVR, it could be heard, the, the shimmying as well. Quickly thereafter, V1 and Rotate were called out by the captain, which is the point of no return, so they could not reject the takeoff. Which, for those of you who couldn't figure it out, the captain was the pilot monitoring, and the first officer was the pilot flying. Right. So they rotated and took off, put the gear up, and continued climbing. Within one and a half minutes, a low-pressure light chimed or began blinking, 
And a master caution, a master warning began blinking. Uh-oh. That's never good. Not only was the master caution on, but the master warning was on, and they were blinking. That's like if your check engine light was blinking. So, question... What is the difference between the major caution and the major warning? So a master caution or usually master caution. Yeah, a master caution usually applies to items you should be aware of either either something that is coming up or an issue that or something that could cause further issue. Uh a master warning is an immediate problem that should absolutely be taken care of as quickly as possible. So, so both were happening at the same time? Both were happening at the same time, which means this... And they weren't just steady, they were blinking. They were blinking, which means it happened very, very quickly. And isn't there, like, an alarm that goes off with the master caution? Yes, yeah. very loud one. Yeah, it goes, eh, 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 eh. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that'll get your attention, at least, right? Yep. So they leveled off at 2,000 feet. Air traffic control was very busy that day, and another plane had a very similar issue. So that said, when they began making calls back and forth, saying that they had a problem and an indication, they didn't use their call sign, and air traffic control thought they were the other flight. What? Yep. Oh, no! A wing spoiler light then came on. Air traffic control then tells them to descend to 3,000, even though Nation Air is at 2,400 feet, so Nation Air climbs to 3,000. ATC was still, still thinks that they're talking to the other airplane. ATC being air traffic controller, by the way. Yeah, if you haven't figured that out yet, <laughs> ATC is air traffic control. The air traffic controller then instructs them to fly a heading of 160, to which they comply. Then they quickly notice, the flight engineer quickly noticed that they were losing hydraulic fluid and hydraulic pressure. Lights came on for hydraulics. And they reverted to manual control, so took it away from autopilot. Huh. Hydraulics. Again. Yep. I'm sure it's not something that was... I, I'm sure that was a byproduct of what was going on, but again, yep. with the hydraulics. Yep. <laughs> at this point, they did request an emergency landing at Jeddah, and they had to make a very wide turn to get back, because they were out over the water, and they had to turn all the way back and then approach over the city. And at this point, smoke began to fill the cabin in the rear, the flight attendant, one of the flight attendants quickly tells the nation air mechanic who's sitting toward the front of the airplane about the smoke. Okay, quick question. Because yep. this will help um, with my brain, right? A DC-8, is that wing-mounted engines or rear-mounted engines? They are wing-mounted engines. There are four of them. And it is a mid-low wing airplane. So in other words, the wings are mid-fuselage, as they should be. Um, although if you have rear mounted engines, typically the wings sit further behind the mid fuselage because the weight is more toward the rear. Wings should always be over center of gravity. So the wings in this case were mid fuselage for the center of gravity and the engines were mounted underneath. Wings were low. So below the passenger. Okay. Cabin. Thank you. That's all I needed. Please yep. continue. At this point, the flight crew still didn't know that there was smoke in the, ca in the cabin. At three minutes after takeoff, they were level at 3,000 feet. ATC still thinks they're talking to the other airplane, and at this point, they're already 20 kilometers from Jeddah. So far enough away, that they had to go through with this full turn all the way back. And they had a ways to go. Passengers began rushing forward for air because the smoke was filling the cabin toward the rear, causing them to begin suffocating. 
As they declared an emergency, confusion about which runway uh, occurred, they were told to take one runway and then the other, and then they were told they could take any runway. But they needed headings from air traffic control, and because air traffic control thought they were the other airplane, it was very unclear what was happening. The flight attendant finally came into the cockpit and told them about the smoke in the cabin, and that passengers were finding it very difficult to breathe. But Jetta was still 19 kilometers away at that point. And just about at that exact same time, the first officer noticed that he lost control of the ailerons, which control the roll of the airplane, so tilt left and right, which helps them put the airplane into turns. So the captain took over control, and at least his controls were able to get the ailerons to do some sort of movement, but it was difficult. They tried to line up for the runway using their very difficult controls, and they managed to do so. At this point, air traffic control finally realized what airplane they were talking to, that they were talking to the wrong one, and told them that they had uh, clearance for any runway. But over that time, no call signs for this emergency had been used for over three minutes for either one of the two flights. So in other words, none of them had communicated which airplane was flying. Including... Including the flight crew on this plane. So they right. weren't calling Nation Air or Nigeria 2120. Right. At one point, they clarified using their tail number <coughs> instead. Well, isn't that standard issue to use your call sign so they know who they're talking to? This it, is 1991, right? It is. It is. And it especially is now. But in this situation, it was very busy. And uh, a lot of non-standard things were happening. But this was from the flight crew, though. Why didn't the flight crew call out their call sign? Right. Well, Nation Air wasn't a very big airline. And as you will see later, their operating manuals and their operation procedures were not very clear or very good. Air traffic control told them to turn left to 040, finally giving them instructions, correct instructions, to get them back to the runway. By this point, passengers in the rear were engulfed in flames. And unfortunately, a hole began to develop in the fuselage, and seats and people began to fall from the airplane. Oh my god. Yep. Miranda's freaking out. At this point, they were also over Jeddah, so these seats and people were falling to the city. That would be horrifying, seeing people and airplane parts fall out of the sky. like in On your fire. Front, on yep. fire. In your front yard. Yeah. And that clearly that person's going to end up being dead. Like, they, they dropped from thousands of feet in the air. At this point, they were at 1,700 feet. Yep. Yeah. And 10 miles out. So, I mean, yeah, they hit the ground, they did. So, can you even imagine just being like, there's people falling from the sky? I mean, it was a worrying sight, no doubt. Uh, now I see why you guys said it was dramatic. Yeah. Passengers tried to open the doors toward the front. To relieve the smoke, but obviously they were unable to do so because the airplane was traveling too quickly. They didn't know. They'd never flown before. Yeah. <coughs> they were trying to do whatever possible to save themselves. They were trying to open the door, trying to relieve the the smoke, but they couldn't do so. Wouldn't the smoke be relieved out the back of the airplane? Yes and no. I because guess they would have to see how the hole was in the fuselage. It's in the floor. Oh, it's in the floor? Yeah. Okay, Heat please, rises. please don't tell me this has something to do with some TWA 800 stuff. It does not. No. <sighs> Thank God. I was like, please don't tell me this is like an air conditioning thing. Like, that's going to 
driving Not me nuts. quite. Nope. We already gave you all the clues. <laughs> we did. I don't know. I don't know what the pop was. That's okay. There's more to come. Okay. <laughs> Let me put it this way, Miranda. You, me, and Mom have experienced this. Have you ever heard a pop and felt a shimmy in a car? Yeah, but that's a tire, right? But how would that affect? How would that cause the plane to catch on fire? I guess that's my point. Exactly. We'll get into is, that. Is it some something like you know the Concorde type thing? We'll get into it. Uh, okay. The Concorde does come up. Okay. Let's okay. get back to where I was. <laughs> At this point, they were cleared to land on any runway, and they requested emergency vehicles, of course. And then very quickly, they lost elevator control, which controls pitch. So the airplane couldn't pitch up or down anymore, and it began to nose over very hard. The captain quickly requested gear down, at which point the fuselage completely broke apart. They crashed just short of runway 3-4 center in a fiery explosion. It was completely obliterated and left a trail of blackened debris. 247 passengers and 14 crew for a total of 261 perished. Zero survived. This was the deadliest DC-8 crash in history. To this point. To this point. It is now the second deadliest DC-8 crash (laughs) in history. Right. Any questions so far? I'm looking at photos of the crash site to help me visualize. It was really bad. Yeah, (coughs) it's pretty bad. (laughs) I just want to figure out how point A, which was a flat tire, got to point B, which was the plane catching on fire, to point C, where it just completely broke up. Like, right. I, I need I need to connect the dots. So, in order to save me some voice, we have decided to change who's in charge of investigations for this week. That way I don't have to uh, <clears throat> keep coughing and losing my voice anymore, and I can at least talk again later on. And yours truly will take over after this brief message. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor all. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. And we're back. So, one day after the crash, the Canadian Transportation Safety Board joined the investigation since Nation Air was a Canadian airline, for one. But two, they also had more resources than the Saudis did. They had more experience, personnel, and lab capabilities, which the Saudis just didn't. But they did work out of a Saudi Arabian hangar. Once the black boxes were recovered, they were sent to a Canadian lab since the Saudis didn't have anything to process that kind of data and ensure it survived the extreme heat of the fire. As we talked about, the wreckage site was quite large. It was 400 meters long and 200 meters wide, or 1,300 feet by 650 feet, though bodies were found 11 miles behind the wreckage, so they had started to fall once the fuselage was compromised. Which means that the crash site was actually 11 miles long. 12. Whatever. 12 miles. Something like that. It was very difficult to identify any pieces of the plane, as many were disintegrated, burned, charred, melted, etc. Though they were able to determine that it ultimately crashed in a nose-low right bank attitude. Nine crew members were ultimately identified, but no effort was made to identify any of the over 200 passengers, as most were burned beyond recognition. 
I think the only reason they were able to identify crew was because there wasn't, like, any fire near the cockpit. Yeah, that would make sense. Because all the fire was back in the back of the plane. Yep. As I had mentioned, everything was burned and melted. Um, sections of seats were melted, so the fire was definitely in the cabin. It had to be coming from the wheel well, right? Like, underneath Yeah. the fuselage. I can't think of any other way that would happen. So, what did popping a tire have to do with... We'll get into it. Catch it. I want to know! We'll get into it. This investigation was pretty deep. Yeah. And so, because the seats were melted, um, some of those parts have really high melting temperatures, like... 1,100 degrees Celsius or over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So they were in a blowtorch, basically. Molten aluminum was found spattered on the tail of the plane, and most of the damage was in the fuselage, um, so they knew there was an an in-flight fire mid-cabin. They discovered that the center fuel tank was compromised because there were scorch marks inside the tank. Back at the runway, investigators found the left main landing gear had left rubber marks from the beginning of their takeoff sequence and continued a ways before they could see exactly where one tire burst followed by another on the same gear. Nation Air quickly released a theory that there was debris on the runway that burst the tire, similar to the Concorde, which happened nine years later. But the Saudis quickly disputed this as there was no evidence of any debris on the runway. Can I guess something? Yeah. Because it would make, this would make sense. Maybe I'm wrong. The amount of friction, maybe not, maybe, I was just thinking from the tires rotating. There is a condition of the tires that you do not know yet. Oh, okay, well, try to fill in blanks. Yeah, so we'll get there. Investigators examined the tire pieces that were left on the runway, only to find that they had sufficient tread and were in decent shape, so there's no reason that they should have just shredded based on the information they had to this point. One of the wheels had actually scraped the runway and was ground and filed down from the runway, which made it super hot when they were taking off. Yeah, well, they figured out it was, what, already in the 80s? And the the asphalt had to be hotter than that. Well, but was... this was bare metal to concrete. Oh, yeah. So, hot, hot, hot. Friction! Once they were able to get the CVR transcript from earlier, they realized that the flight crew had actually suspected they had a flat tire, as well as the dialogue about whether or not the first officer had his feet on the rudder pedals. They knew from this that the brakes were released, so it wasn't because he kept his foot on the brakes. Coincidentally, this was a stroke of luck. I don't know how the heck this happened. But while they were at the crash site, an investigator was rummaging around the cockpit area when a bunch of papers began to fly his way. He caught them in case they were important, only to find out that one of them was actually a flight inspection checklist that had the tire pressures. This was real lucky. So the tire pressure, I'm assuming, was too high? The checklist said they were inflated to normal pressures, but there were two different colors of ink. Yeah. One, one was written over the first, which is a big no-no in aviation. It's actually illegal. You cannot alter documents at all. So they sent it to a lab, and they found that what was written first was actually 20 to 30 PSI lower than the safe pressure levels for the tires. But I can see the confusion on your face about how that would cause this problem. This will make a lot more sense here shortly. It, it would make sense if the tires were over, right? Because then it would be too much stress on an overbearing tire would pop the tire. Right. So, so that, then think I understand ab- that. So think about this in the opposite way. What happens to the tire that it shares an axle with then? It has more weight on it. 
Because that tire is then considered overinflated compared to the one that's underinflated. So was it just one tire that was underinflated, or was it both on that gear? So there are four on the gear. So if you're looking at it, so on the forward end is one and two. One is the outside, two is the inside. And then three and four are behind them. Two and four were underinflated. But they do not share an axle. One and two share an axle, and three and four share an axle. But because those two tires... Let me get into it. ...were... Okay. So... So... Sorry. <laughs> Was it the overbearing tires then that popped? Give me a minute. Okay. I just <laughs> the question. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's a lot in this. There is. So, four days before the crash, Nation Air Mechanics wanted to change two of the four tires, two and four, actually, on the left landing gear for wear and low pressure, but they received a fax from Jetta that they needed to remain on schedule and to skip the tire swap. So the mechanic wrote over the previous number so the plane could leave the facility. Oh. My. Gosh! <laughs> <laughs> ah! I hate this so much. Every time we talk about mechanical stuff, with... Uh, I'm also... So fun fact, for those of you... I'll plug this now because it makes me think of this, right? I will be doing episodes on our upcoming Patreon that'll just be me, and these two have to listen to me. (laughs) Um, And I'm doing Alaska 261, and I've come across... I'm reading the NTSB report. Horrible maintenance practices. And mechanics not knowing what to do, and just doing what they want. Because they need to keep the plane in the air, and ultimately it causes catastrophic failure. I hate it. I hate it. Hate it. Yep. Three days later, the plane landed in Jetta with underinflated tires. Before the flight happened on that fateful July 11th, the crew arrived for pre-flight checks, including the lead mechanic who was on board, Jean-Paul Philippe. He decided to top off the two tires. But when he asked another airline for nitrogen, all of their tanks were empty. So he wanted to go find another airline that had nitrogen laying around. But the project manager said they had a schedule to meet and to, quote, forget it. This is what I'm talking about. I have a schedule to meet. We're losing money. Well, guess what? People died, as I keep saying on all of these episodes. Yep. So the worst part is the pilots actually probably had no idea that the tires were underinflated. No, it's entirely the mechanics and the airline's fault. So you remember how Nick said they taxied for a long time? Yeah. So 11 minutes and 5 kilometers or 3 miles in hot desert temperatures. In addition to the desert heat, the underinflation led to an uneven distribution of weight, which created a bending moment on the wheels. And based on some quick napkin mathematics... This bending moment was enacted at an average of 120 RPM on the tires, which also generates heat. So the nylon melted and the tire blew. Tire one, actually. So not one of the underinflated ones, but the one next to one of the underinflated ones. Quickly followed by tire, tire number three. two. Oh, really? Yeah. So the one next to it. Yep. So one and two share an axle. So as soon as two was too low of an inflation and one had had that bending moment so it was it had been basically been pushed on in an odd way because of it's having to pick up the slack 
as soon as they got rolling and it added more friction, more heat, that tire burst. Well, then all that weight suddenly went to the underinflated tire and that tire burst. And once this happened, the wheels started grinding on the pavement, which created sparks. The other tires are still flammable because they're rubber. So the whole landing gear was on fire. And then they and retracted then, it. Yep. And it went into the fuselage near the tank. Not near the tank. Near the hydraulics. Which, so the hydraulics went out. And hydraulic fluid is flammable. Which caused a chain reaction. Yep. So the fire spread, burning wires along the way, which is why they were getting weird error messages in the cockpit, is because all of these things were shorting, like the spoiler light and the flap slot light. The fire spread to the main hydraulic line as well, and it also lit some magnesium alloy on fire. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a science class where you got to burn magnesium. It burns really hot and really bright. It is so bright of a white flame that you cannot look at it with your bare eyes. Super hot, super dangerous. So that's all happening in the wheel well. The fire then spread to the right wheel well, which is why the first officer lost ailerons, but not the captain. And then it then burned through into the cabin. It also hit the center fuel tank. So everything's just burning. Yep. So when they when they extended the landing gear... That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And it all just came apart. Yep. Yep. It allowed the airframe to essentially collapse on itself. As well as it allowed a lot of oxygen to suddenly flow into this fire. Exactly. It's Sorry. no wonder that they didn't just explode. Yeah. I mean, they basically did, but they were so close to the ground that they also just hit the ground. So. Wow. Yep. Dramatic ball of flame. Mm -hmm. The NTSB did review the Saudi report, and they concluded that had the crew left the landing gear extended, the incident might have been averted. But they well, didn't know. The However, sparks wouldn't have right. reached the, the inside of the aircraft. Yep. Yeah, there was no way they knew. And it's not unstandard, even now, for an airplane to take off with a flat tire. It's actually most of the time considered safer, because if you tried to stop on that that flat tire, it might actually do more damage. Well, and they didn't know both tires blew. If they had known, maybe they wouldn't have done that. But I mean, they suspected? Well, they suspected that they blew a tire, but I don't think they suspected both tires blew. But they also didn't have a checklist for if a tire blew on takeoff. Oh, well, that's a problem. Right. Sounds so, like this airline needs to check themselves. They need a check for their checklists. <laughs> they need a check for their checklists of the checklists. <laughs> so their procedure, they followed procedure. Their procedure was to continue taking off. Nobody had any indications that they shouldn't have. And they also didn't have any indications that they shouldn't just retract the landing gear. They didn't know it was on fire. They're ahead of it. They can't see it. And they knew all of this before V1. They knew before the go-no-go. No, go. That there was likely a flat tire. That's all I got. Oh my gosh. I'm so mad. You're right. I figured you would be. They were like, you're going to be bad. I am mad. I'm mad because it could have been avoided. There are times where things cannot be avoided. This is not one of those. This is not one of those times. This is one of those times, similar to our first episode, where there are so many times that this could have been prevented along the way. Multiple. And they even tried to do something about it at the airport. 
before they took off. And the airline was like, forget it. Don't worry about it. We have a schedule to keep. I hate it. And I realize, okay, those of you who work with airlines, airlines themselves, if anyone from an airline is listening, I get it. A plane needs to be in the air to make money. But you have so many planes, right? You also have lives on your hands. Yeah. This is not just about, I need to make money. I get that. But you have actual people on board these flights. You're making it an unsafe situation. And that's why there's so many rules, regulations, and laws now in aviation that point to the safety of these flights to prevent things like this, obviously, nowadays. But, I mean, yes, it's unfortunate that you have to have a regulation, a law, or a rule, or something like that to make sure these things don't happen. But if that's what it takes, then all the better. Well, apparently, airlines can't figure out how to make it safe because they're too worried about losing money like that's what i've come out since we started this podcast and even since you know i started watching air disasters it's the one thing i think that occurs most often the airline needs to make money and so they cut corners cut corners it's very much a pressure driven industry and it's very unfortunate but it's less so now it's just one of those things i get it probably I'm going to say probably because I'm I'm sure there are airlines around the world that still try to do this. But there has to be a point where you're like, this is not a safe situation. Like, this plane went into desert country, right? It's going to be hot. If you knew anything about these tires, the amount of taxiing on the runway at Jeddah, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's just it. You look at it on paper... And they sent a project manager and a lead mechanic from the company with the airplane on this long journey that it was going to have around the Middle East and Northern Africa in the desert to make sure that the airplane would be sustained. And on paper, that looks amazing. Well, as I get into the findings, you'll find out why that didn't work. Well, for one thing, they didn't let the person who was on board to help it, help it. They did. But that person wasn't helpful, and there's a reason why. Before we get into that, one of the other things that came up in the investigation that they looked at, of course, was the really poor communication between air traffic control and the flight crew. It was found that this was not a factor in the flight, even though this communication was so poor that something had to change, obviously, from that, because... There was literally no communication of registration numbers. The air traffic controller thought he was talking to a completely different airplane for three whole minutes of constant communication. I will admit, though, even if it had been perfect ATC communication, I don't think it would have averted this disaster. No, it absolutely would not, because the airplane still flew basically a perfect circle around back to the airport. It didn't change anything about what the airplane did. So the air traffic controller in this case really honestly got lucky. So did the flight crew. But not really. The flight crew was not lucky they died. (laughs) Right. But I mean, if you learn anything from Garuda Indonesia, poor communication, it doesn't take much, can cost them their lives. In this case, the air traffic control got lucky that it wasn't because of them. Yeah. They just didn't help the situation. No, it didn't. But even then, like you said, it probably wouldn't have kept it from happening. Mm -mm. It may just have happened not near the airport. So I have a question. I know we've discussed in previous 
episodes that sometimes air traffic control will be like, hey, I saw sparks or flames coming from your plane. Are they required to visually see planes as they take off to see if there's sparks or flames or whatever? This will have to be deeper research. I don't believe so. Because air traffic control so either. air traffic control can operate in almost zero visibility as well, just like airplanes. Yeah, but if they have the visibility, right? should they have seen this? Should they have seen the flames coming from the undercarriage of the plane? Not necessarily. And in Jeddah, it's, everything was so far apart. Now, Jeddah does have, and at the time, I think it was the tallest air traffic control tower in the world, and it might even still be today, or it might be one of the tallest. Miranda's um, doing some boop-a-da-boop research. Yeah. Doing the boop-a-da-boops. It is, it's in the middle of the airfield still to this day because everything is pretty spread apart, just like here in Denver. But there is so much going on, so many flights going on, that he's probably attending the radar the whole time because he's trying to deal with so many other airplanes. He didn't even have time to look up and watch his airplane. As soon as it was clear the runway on his radar, he's calling the next airplane to go. Okay. Just wondering. The 10 tallest air traffic control towers in the world. The first one is an airport, the International Airport in Thailand. Sivarani? Don't know that one. I can't one. say that name. It's probably a newer tower. Not Jetta. Um, it is... It was completed in 2005. So, yeah. It, it's newer. It's, it's, it's a newer tower. It doesn't tell me how tall it is. Really? Yeah. That's weird. That is weird. Does it for Jetta? I, I don't even know if Jeddah's on here. The next one's so, Kuala Lumpur. Okay. Jeddah is the King Abdulaziz International Airport. The new ATC Tower in Hartsfield-Jackson, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. The Tokyo International Airport, which has a new one since 2010. It's one of the biggest ones. Mm-hmm. There's one in China. There's one in Egypt. There's one in... United Arab Emirates? Emirates. Emirates. Emirates, yeah. UAE. Yeah. There's Vienna International Airport What's in the Austria. What's huh? the UAE one? It's uh, <laughs> Abu Dhabi? Abu yeah, Dhabi. Abu Dhabi, yeah. And then after um, Vienna, it's the Indianapolis International Airport. That's true. They do have a new one. Then the Orlando International Airport. That one was the tallest one actually for a long time. Yeah, so it's that. it's not even on here anymore. That surprises me because it is pretty enormous and it's in the middle of literally the middle of the airport, which really it isn't. There wouldn't have been a great visual then. Yeah. Well, it was one of the tallest then, but isn't now. Right. Now that we've expanded our worldly architecture. Yep. Yeah, most of these are in the United States. I find that uh, very interesting. Right. So... There was no probable cause in this incident in any of the things we could find. However, that said, we're also working with no actual report that's publicly accessible to us. Yeah, we couldn't find it. So we're working with a few other sources of information. So we used the um, Mayday episode as well as the... Flight Safety Foundation Accident Prevention, Volume 50, Number 9, from September 1993, titled Tire Failure on Takeoff, Set Stage for Fatal In-Flight Fire and Crash. And it's basically a really summed-up version of the report. It gave us it gave us quite a bit of information. 
But we got the majority from the episode, which I'm assuming they somehow had the report. Yeah, they did, because they actually showed it oh, in yeah. the episode. They, they showed it. I'm like, that. I need that. Why can't I have that? So if any of you, including our international listeners, if any of you have access or know how to get access to that, you can email us at info at heartlandingspodcast.com. And oh, then... I want to see it. We can we take a look at it. Yeah. We do plan to follow up on this eventually. Anyways. So that said... Instead, they had findings against the probable cause. That means instead of a probable cause, they only had the findings related to it. So in the findings, one of the major things they, they found was that this, the cockpit voice recorder revealed that there was little evidence that the, crew, that the crew had any crew resource management training. Which comes up in every episode. It does. It turns out it's a really key thing. And by this point, crew resource management was very much a thing. It was key in this. They didn't have, they weren't using their crew resource management at all. There was no proof that they were training, that they had any training for it. They weren't using it. And they didn't, they also didn't use any emergency checklists. From the point that the incident happened to the end of the cockpit voice recorder, which was only about halfway through that entire flight because the lines were cut to the cockpit voice recorder from the fire. So. You're telling me they didn't have any checklists at all? No, it's not they that they didn't, didn't have them. They just didn't use them. Right. Like, so this was important. this was the first sign that something was off about their procedures. They were doing procedures, and they weren't all necessarily wrong, but something was off about the way they were doing procedures. And as we get further into the findings, you'll see what those are. They found that the organizational the organizational structure for the deployment team was ill-defined and fragmented. So in other words, the team that they had put together to go on this long trip, these travels, there was no real good definition for why some of the people were there, who they were, and what their roles were in this deployment that they were on overseas. They found that the maintenance personnel on the trip were not qualified or authorized to release the aircraft for flight. In other words, the lead mechanic and the project manager that were on board, who were signing off this airplane to fly, were not actually qualified to do any work or release this airplane for flight. So why did they come? Right. Then you're spending company hours and you're not even doing your job. The company considered them qualified, but they were not actually qualified in any way, shape, or form. And they were sent as the lead mechanic and the project manager for this airplane on this long deployment. And, okay, so did this plane come from Canada? It did. And so they sent these people overseas thinking, oh, it'll be fine, right? Pretty much, yep. And it wasn't fine. Right, exactly. The aircraft was signed off as fit to fly in an unairworthy condition. The number two and number four tires were below minimum pressure required for flight, and other tires may have been low as well, but all they had to go on was that one sheet of paper they found flying around the crash site. Which I'm still saying was a lucky... It was really lucky. And that sheet, I mean, was from four days before, so it had been flying for another four days back and forth to and from Jeddah. Which probably meant the tires were even lower right. than what they had said right. originally. And some of the other ones may have been by that point as well. Maintenance personnel were aware of the low pressure 
but did not service tires before flight. So, in other words, they chose not to have the service done before it left the ground several times. And they also didn't have training on how crucial and important that step is. Right. They didn't understand the consequences, so they didn't pursue the issue further, saying, no, we have to do this. Right. They weren't trained on the importance of tire pressures. They found that a mechanic had altered that record, which is the only record they had of the tire pressures, from four days before the incident, which is illegal. Is that like an international law? It is. It is an international law. It, it falls under IATA, which is a governing council for aviation, basically, internationally. It I've... stands for the International Air Transport Association. Right. So they knew that was illegal and they did it anyway? Yep. Pencil whipped. Did... And maybe you don't know the answer to this, which is okay, but did those engineers get fired? No idea. Don't know. They or didn't... I guess mechanics, not engineers. Yeah, the mechanics. Don't know. They should have been, because it's illegal. <laughs> right. They found that there was no evidence that the pressures had been checked with a tire gauge after the July 7th, or the four-day prior, record. So, in other words, after that, anything that anybody said about checking tire pressures, they couldn't prove, because they couldn't prove that they ever used a tire pressure gauge. They found that the persons who were aware of the low tire pressure were not trained on the importance of tire pressure and were not qualified to, the ins to assess the importance of it. They found that the project manager was responsible for the aircraft schedule and directed the aircraft to depart without servicing the tires, knowing that they were low. The lead mechanic also did not counter that decision, knowing full well that they were leaving with low tire pressures. They found that there was no evidence that the flight crew was ever informed of the low tire pressures at any point in time over those four days, meaning they literally probably had no idea that the tires were low to begin with before they burst on takeoff. During the long taxi to the runway, the load from the number two tire transferred to the number one tire, leading to the over-deflection, overheating, and the structural weakening of the number one tire. The number one tire failed very early in the takeoff roll, Number two tire failed almost immediately after when load was transferred. The number two wheel stopped rotating for an unknown reason, which led to the high friction from contact with the runway, causing any tire remnants to catch fire. They found that at least one piece of the number one wheel came detached from damage on takeoff and became embedded in the flap. I didn't know that part. Yeah, that was fun. Explosive. <laughs> Yep, it just embedded in the flap. Lovely. At least one piece, that's what they found. That means that that one piece, like, somehow survived the crash. Yeah, exactly. They found that the crew were aware of the symptoms immediately, and the captain chose to continue the takeoff, which isn't entirely abnormal. They found that the aircraft was not equipped with the warning systems for the tire burst in the fire. So in other words, there was no system built into the wheel well or the brakes, or any part of the landing gear system to alert them to a fire, to an overheat, to any sort of problems at all. So, in other words, there were no indications in the cockpit, except for everything else going wrong with the airplane, that that was what was wrong. Didn't they have fire extinguishers by this time? In a lot of other airplanes, yes, but the DC-8 was already pretty old by this point. It was an so airplane from the 50s. Right, the airplane, the DC-8 had been around since the 50s, 60s, going into that age, it was already pretty old. They were hand-me-downs, and so a lot of them didn't have newer equipment. This one, no doubt, 
had the same situation. How did it even get overseas? They're still a very capable airplane. I mean, they they fly long distances, and they were they were very capable airplanes at the time. They were very modern, very very good airplanes. But as they aged, they did show problems, of course. And this one didn't have the equipment to warn them of the problem. And so, no, they didn't know, and no, they didn't have extinguishers built in. They found that the crew retracted the gear in accordance with the company procedures and without any crucial indications that they should do otherwise, bringing the fire into the wheel well. They found that evidence indicates indicated that the fire in the wheel well included the tires, hydraulic fluid, magnesium alloy, and jet fuel. Jet fuel, of course, coming from the pierced fuel tank. Compromised fuel tank. Yes, compromised fuel tank. They found that a fire, the fire intensified until it breached the passenger cabin floor and destroyed the flight control systems in the process. So, in other words, the, flight off, the first officer lost his flight controls, followed by the captain slowly thereafter. They found that the tire characteristics and performance were not adequately addressed during training for flight crews or technicians at the company, and they found that the operator's maintenance and operating documents did not contain adequate info for proper maintenance of the aircraft tires. So there was nothing, you know, they weren't trained to handle the tires, they weren't trained to see the importance of the tires, neither the flight crew, nor the ground crew, nor the mechanics, nobody was. And there also wasn't any resources to help them do so, whether it be from the manufacturer or the operator. So, are you the one doing recommendations? I'm assuming one of them is to get proper training things in sesh, right? Yeah. I hope so, because boo-boo, this ain't good. <laughs> Needless to say, they had very <laughs> under-trained staff. I mean, it kind of blows my mind, and it's not, it's really, it's not the lead mechanic's fault, nor even the project manager's fault necessarily that they were put in a situation that they were uncomfortable with. They were pushed into a situation, put under pressure by the company for money, when they weren't even qualified to be there. I think when this plane was still in Canada, those mechanics should have stood up and said, no, this needs it, to get done. It wasn't in Canada. So the four day prior was in Ghana. Yeah, but didn't it before it went to Ghana? They didn't have record before Ghana about tire pressures. Oh, they so didn't know. it was... They sent the airplane fully functional with a crew they believed as a company was qualified. So then was the lead, lead quote-unquote, mechanic on board, was he the one who did that check that they, that they did? The one four days prior? Yeah. No. Those were Nation Air mechanics in Ghana. So what they should have done is said, we can't put this plane in the air until this gets done. To be fair... All you have to do is put nitrogen in the tire. Right. But they didn't know the importance of it. They were told to keep to the strict schedule, don't replace the tires, any of that. They didn't know the implications of not doing it. I'm just saying, I think pressure from the airline is a huge thing. And that mechanics need to have... Because, again, I'm running into this when I'm researching Alaskan Airlines. And their crash happened in 2001. So what I've come across is... You need to stand up to the company and say, no, we can't, this airplane can't fly. Like, we have to do this now. Understandably, those mechanics didn't know how 
serious the implication was with the tire. Well, right? the thing is, is they weren't even trained to assess that. They weren't even trained to know to say, no, don't fly that airplane. They thought it was fine. They weren't trained to do so. They weren't even trained to say they could release the airplane or not. They couldn't stand up because they didn't know. They were they were literally unqualified to do so. I feel like this should be... We need to add another tag on the website to be company failure. I think this was a failure on the company. They were the ones who said, this plane needs to go to Jeddah. You need to stay on schedule. Don't worry about the tires. Don't worry about any of this. And because of that, this plane ended up catching fire and crashing. That's fair. To be fair, this did ultimately lead to the collapse of the company two years later. Good. (laughs) Yeah, Nation Air went the bye-bye. All right, so the Presidency of Civil Aviation of Saudi Arabia issued five recommendations. The first one issued recommended that all public transport aircraft be equipped with wheel-well overheat and fire detectors, wheel-well fire protection, brake temperature sensors, tire pressure sensors, and corresponding indicators in the cockpit. The second one was issued to aviation regulatory authorities, which recommended that aviation regulatory authorities monitor and ensure the use of proper radio procedures and code words, since no one was using call signs. Right. They also recommended that aviation regulatory authorities monitor and ensure a the use of operating manuals and procedures that are current, complete, and accurate, and which include actions for dealing with tire failures during and after takeoff, b the training of flight crews to include adequate information on tire performance and vulnerability to ensure safe operation, and the formal inclusion of crew resource management in initial and recurrent training. Needless to say. The fourth one, um, it was recommended that aviation regulatory authorities monitor and ensure A, the use of maintenance manuals and procedures which are complete, current, and accurate and which reflect the current knowledge of aircraft tire vulnerability. B, the proper maintenance practices and documentation and a requirement for personnel involved in decisions affecting airworthiness matters to be qualified. So basically know what you're doing. C, the training of maintenance personnel to include adequate information on tire servicing and vulnerability to ensure safe operation. So basically know when it's safe and when it's not. And D, quality assurance programs for all maintenance work completed by all aircraft maintenance engineers, mechanics, and other technicians and specialists. So basically make sure everyone knows what they're doing and are doing it to good quality. And I can tell you that even a big change that came from this as well, I mean, maybe not directly from this, but from several incidences, is it is very closely looked at now, tire pressures. And to this day... Most companies and most uh, operators, they are required to check tire pressures before they even tow the airplane or move it anywhere before taxis. Because if the airplane sits in a hangar for a while, undoubtedly it's probably going to lose a little bit of tire pressure. But sitting still, that's not a big deal. You won't damage the tire too much if you reinflate it back to its normal tire pressure before you roll it. It's like a tire on your car. Right. To this day... If they roll an airplane without checking the tire pressures, and if the tire pressures prove to be low, they have to replace that tire entirely. Ah. Ah. They have to replace the whole tire. Which is expensive, yes. And on the spot. But it's safe. And that's what's important. Right. 
is the safety of the people on board that aircraft. Whether it be cargo or otherwise, cargo still have people on board. Yep. Yep. And these are becoming such an important part of aviation, even just, you would think, well, it's just the tire that only rolls on the ground, and then they're flying the whole time. Well, obviously, in this incident, that proved otherwise. But even in general aviation, to the smallest levels, in little airplanes, they're starting to put temperature sensors on the brakes and the wheels that read in the cockpit. Yep. Cirrus aircraft have them built in now. The last recommendation, um, the FAA in the United States had a advisory subject takeoff safety training aid dated August 3rd, 1992. Basically, they recommended that this be distributed worldwide and implemented into training so that all pilots know that this is part of the go-no-go and to be able to make that call. So if they did a no-go on that flight, they probably would have been fine, right? Yep. Right. There was quite a few times that they probably would have been fine if they had done something different. If they had left the landing gear down the whole time, it may not have may have made it back to the runway at least, but it didn't. They didn't know that, of course. So they weren't properly trained. Yeah. So I get again. I think this is just on the. It's on the company. Your people aren't trained. They don't know the. You know that's physics. That's yep. like I don't know if any of you. I have a few friends who are in aviation classes, like to become a commercial pilot at Metro. That's where I go to school. At the Metropolitan State University of Denver. And they have to take so many classes that have to do with physics and flow mechanics and all this stuff so they understand what's going on with the airplane. So if something goes wrong, they know what's happening. They know what to do. They can make the go-no-go call. So that was Nigerian Airways 2120, operated by Nation Air. It was very dramatic. This is the first one we did with no report. Yeah, again, if you are able to find it, if you have a PDF of it, I want to see Please it. send it to us. Email it to us. Even you could probably insert it on our website in the comments section on the blog post if you wanted to. If it's buried on the depths of the internet, I'm sorry for my poor Google skills. We just couldn't find it anywhere. So, let us know. Have a good week, everyone. Stay safe. It's winter weather around here, so... Good luck on... Be careful. ...finals for all my buddies listening. Yep. And I'm going to try to feel better. Let's hope next week's a semi-normal week. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not holding my breath. Keep Keep your airspeed airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.